0: Welcome to To The Point Cybersecurity Podcast. Each week, join Audra Simons and Rachel Lyon to explore the latest in global cybersecurity news, trending topics, and industry transformation initiatives impacting governments, enterprises, and our way of life. Now, let's get To The Point. Hello, everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of To The Point Podcast. I'm Rachel Lyon, here with my co-host, Audra Simons.
1: Hey, good afternoon, UK time.
0: That's right. And you're <laughs> in jolly old London. Is is that what they call it? Jolly old London? Stuff?
1: I, I, a jolly old London or dirty old London, whatever you want to call it. But, but today it's actually semi-sunny London. So it's beautiful.
0: Oh, that's wonderful. So I'm excited for today's conversation because we're going to dig more into ed tech today, which I just think is such a hot topic that not enough people are talking about, Audra.
1: And and so without
0: further ado, let me introduce our guest today, Keith Kruger. He is CEO of the Consortium for School Networking. It's a nonprofit organization that serves as the voice of K-12 school system technology leaders in North America. Keith, welcome to the podcast. Great
2: to be here and wishing I was in London.
1: Me too. (laughs) Well, if y'all want to be here with me, I'll start off with some questions. Awesome. (laughs)
0: All right. Let's do it.
1: So, um... So, much, most educators have little experience or expertise in cybersecurity because we have had conversations with people who are in kind of ed tech previously, and yet the, it's the point is that it's the most pressing of vulnerabilities in today's society. And so, beyond simply being aware of this vulnerability, educational leaders must ask themselves, what's an effective strategy for managing cybersecurity concerns? And whom do you trust to actually give you the best information? And what I'm asking you, Keith, what do you recommend in terms of how should educators approach this? What should they well, do Well, it's first?
2: A, a big challenge. Uh, and our Homeland Security Agency, uh, the Center for Internet Security, uh, CISA, has said that, that K-12 schools uh, in the United States, at least, are the most targeted uh, for ransomware. Uh, that's because we've got lots of, uh, uh, students and teachers who click on things that they probably shouldn't be clicking on. So you asked what the first fundamental thing that we need to focus on, and that is end user training, meaning, uh, students, teachers, maybe even parents, and certainly administrators all need to, um, Understand the basics around being a good cyber uh, uh, citizen and not just clicking on anything, but hovering over and making sure it's a real thing. Uh, we also realize uh, we are the professional association of people who lead technology in school systems, school districts, we call them in the United States. And even they uh, often do not have uh, deep expertise around something like cybersecurity. Um, And so um, that's important that we realize there's really a human capacity challenge. Uh, uh, We haven't uh, funded it very well in the United States and I suspect most of the world. And um, that's a challenge even if you could in a school district hire uh, someone with cybersecurity training, uh, they would likely be hired away pretty quickly by local businesses because School districts don't pay as well, at least here. Uh, maybe they do in London. I don't know. But there's lots of uh, challenges that we have um, and there's some strategies that we have. Would it be helpful to talk about what some of those are?
1: That would be great. Absolutely. Absolutely.
2: Yeah. Well, one is obviously end user training, but uh, we also think that school districts should uh, do what we call tabletop exercises where, you know, uh, you get together the, 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 other school administrators, none of whom have technology in their title, but maybe are in charge of uh, the the website, or maybe in charge of uh, the, they're the superintendent or the principal or, or the head of finance. And uh, you know, it's nine o'clock in the morning, and they get a notice that their uh, network has been hacked and. Uh, A criminal wants money. Uh, So what are you going to say uh, in response? What do you, you know, five minutes later, uh, you get a notice that you have to respond to the local TV station. Uh, And uh, 10 minutes later, you're going into your cabinet level. So it's all a timed experience. So that kind of tabletop real-time experience, part of that is to show that there are lots of people who need to play a role. Uh, It isn't just the person with technology in their title. Um, I, I would, uh, you know, there's, there's lots of other basics, and we have some tips around uh, uh, things that school districts can do. Certainly with operating systems and, and technology, you need to keep them up to date. Lapsed uh, too often uh, in education. uh, We don't patch and uh, fix kind of the current most current things because it's a distraction uh, from you know what all the other busy things that people have to do. But those real those updates are critical. They're often related to cybersecurity. So those are some quick things I think everyone needs to do.
1: Rachel, stop growling. Sorry. Um, so can we jump into kind of inequity around digital inequity and in cybersecurity? So yeah. what are the most, I, some of the most, sorry, sorry, Rachel. Well, are I just wanted to
0: a, a side yeah. note. Yeah. Can you hear me? Um, yes. In 2023, to be talking about digital inequities, I think, you know, that is pretty staggering to me. So I, I just wanted to preface that as we jump into this conversation um, wow, wow to be even having this conversation, I guess, is, is what I'm saying.
2: Well, I think equity uh, is at the heart of, of education and uh, digital equity. Uh, we've First of all, we've made considerable progress uh, over the last three or four years. Back uh, in the United States in 2020, uh, about 60% of classrooms were one to one, you know, with a device for every student. Uh, But many of those devices weren't going home. But we realized right when the pandemic happened that uh, having a device as well as having connectivity was critical. Um, Now, we've been tracking that and uh, we've been doing some interesting research. Um, There are lots of surveys, but surveys, you know, are the best estimate of what the person filling out the survey thought. Uh, That's different than real data. And what we wanted to look at was, what was the actual experience for students uh, that first year when everyone was doing remote learning, or just about everyone was doing remote learning. And uh, what we found out was uh, video really changed the whole game. That all of the assumptions we had around connectivity, around devices, and particularly for students who were learning from home, you know, they were in a home where probably their parent, parents or guardians, as well as their siblings were all trying to use that bandwidth okay. and the devices just uh-huh. didn't, simply didn't work. The connectivity okay. was insufficient. And it was particularly problem to get to your question about equity among the poorest families, those that are disproportionately from black or Hispanic families in the United States or, um, uh, uh, we also um, went back this last year to look at the experience of students both at school, which was pretty good. We have pretty good connectivity at school and outside of school. And we found the shocking finding that more connectivity happens, more bandwidth is used outside of school than at school. That's not to say they're not using it at school, right, but, right. <laughs> okay. but students doing their homework use a lot of bandwidth. And again, yes. the same inequities that we were talking about, the poorest students from black and Hispanic and other uh, minority families are the ones most likely to be unconnected. But we also found that underconnectivity connectivity is a big challenge, particularly because we're using video. And when Mm. you get to like the high school level, a third of students do not have sufficient bandwidth in order to do a video conferencing. The poorer you are, the more likely you're using your mobile mobile phone, which is probably data capped. So we have lots of – when we do a survey of chief technology officers, only 5% say that every single student is connected outside of school. So we have, it's going to vary, you know, in many wealthier communities, they've got pretty good connectivity for almost every student, and you can really micro-target the efforts. But um, equity is at the heart of what we need to do. And when we don't have intentional strategies to address it, uh, we worsen the gaps that already exist for uh, low-income minority families.
1: So, can I ask, how do these digital inequities impact on student cybersecurity postures? So, what are really the the biggest or greatest cyber risks that they face? Yeah,
2: you know, uh, first of all, uh, cybersecurity is a problem for all students and and all educators. So, uh, but I think you know the the those who are. well, I think we we learned immediately in the pandemic that, um, particularly, uh, if you haven't had the training, if you're outside of school it, during virtual learning, it was uh, there were lots of distractions, whether it was dogs or, or siblings, <laughs> and so um, uh, there, there's that. I, I know there were there was data showing that. Um, you know, uh, prior to the pandemic, maybe three or f- three to five percent of of teachers and students clicked on uh, bad links and it jumped to like almost 20 percent. Uh, so there was much more uh, um, lack of training. Um, you ask about, um, you know, the whether it falls more on um, low income families. I think it I, I'm not sure if there is evidence to do that. I mean, certainly they're less likely to be connected. They're less likely to. But, but uh, it's a challenge for for kind of all students and 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 uh, teachers. I think to to be addressing so, so the issue of the cyber security.
1: If the cyber risks are the same, is do you think the level of Issues happening, people clicking on links and things of like that was because during the pandemic more people were online, or do you think it's something think else so. that kind of drove up?
2: I think there were a lot of distractions uh, when and um, you know not paying attention, maybe not having uh, orientation training to to think about it, maybe not feeling like you had anything at particularly at risk you know th- I think that's a good question of what is it that why would students care if someone took their data and what we're finding is that student things like birth dates are, are very valuable to cyber criminals and so um, you know a lot of uh, uh, maybe parents or policymakers would say, what in the world do school districts have that's so valuable? Well, they have sometimes social security numbers. They're often the largest employer. Uh, but to go back to the student, if they can get birth dates, they literally wait until the student turns 18 and file for credit cards on that day that the student becomes. And the, the student and the family may not find out for years later There was just uh, we on our national public radio. They had a student who, you know, she was had gone to college, and a a year and a half after she started college, applied for a credit card and find that found that she had three hundred thousand dollars worth of debt that she never knew.
1: Wow! Oh wow! Okay, that's you know, it's not (laughs) just the
2: students. It's not just students, but uh, th- there was this very rural school district in Arizona. They're actually in Navajo land, so an Indian rural area. Uh, they were hacked uh, a year ago last summer. Uh, they were just about to get a, a grant for, I don't know, $30 million or something. Uh, and uh, their finance department had a phishing attack. They The, the criminals got into there. So the... District immediately contacted the FBI and, and and got help, and they closed off all the data. They so the criminals didn't get the access anymore to the data or the monies, but neither hmm. could the school district anymore. In oh. fact, they lost all data back to, ni- to the nineteen eighties, and oh. they're legally oh, wow. required have at least, uh, I, th- I don't know if it's five or 10 years of data for the feds and for their state government. So they are manually recreating all their data, every transaction for the, the last 10 years, making it even worse for their employees. They could not make payroll for two months. They, I mean, oh. ma- uh, other than manual checks. And right. a few employees had direct deposit and they had their before they stopped it their personal bank accounts drained.
0: Oh
2: <laughs> no. This is heartbreaking, <laughs> <is. laughs> Keith. Like you may you know, you may say, well, this isn't you know something I'm really concerned about. What are they going to take? Test scores you know, and kids are going to change them or something, you know. But that's not what it's is at risk. It's personal identities Uh, The district is often the largest employer in the district, so they have lots of social security numbers, uh, birth dates of students. And frankly, the reputation of the school system is perhaps the greatest thing that's at risk. And why, in fact, uh, you know, when school is shut down for a couple of days, uh, some places they've actually paid the criminals, the the ransom. And so that, you know, when you pay criminals – Uh, ransom, they figure, well, uh, you know, the old bank robber, why do I bank rob banks? It's because that's where the money is. Yeah,
1: exactly. Score. (laughs) So in terms of the responsibility though, for trying to keep school data safe, student data safe, where do you see that responsibility lying? Like, is it, does it, is it Students? Is it the faculty? Is it parents to help guide kids when it's involved? I mean, where where does that sit? Well, I think there's
2: uh, every user needs to to be become more sophisticated about what's at risk, and obviously the school system needs to make sure that basic firewalls and other, um, you know, increasingly we see school districts implementing things like multi-factor authentication, uh, you know, so that they know that the person uh, signing in is actually that person. And in fact, school districts in the United States are being required in order to get insurance or keep insurance uh, to have multi-factor. But think about it. How how do you do multi-factor with a kindergartner or first grader? (laughs) it's not exactly. so easy now, now there are there are you know that's not to say they they haven't come up with ways to do it but uh, it's not the easiest thing that we're, we're dealing with and the vast majority of of students in our system are underage so uh, sc- schools have to, the legal term is they have to act in parentis as if they are the parent when they're under the control. They have to legally required that when a student is accessing the school network, it's safe, uh, you know, according to the Children's Internet Protection Act. Now, those standards will will vary depending on the community and the community uh, requirements. But um, you have to have filtering you know, that's just been a basic requirement. Unfortunately, our the biggest funding source for schools is the E-Rate program, which has been a tremendously helpful program to get broadband and Wi-Fi to schools. And, um, but they haven't really prioritized cybersecurity. So they do cover, they have since the E-Rate started over 20 years ago, covering firewalls, but they haven't modernized the definition of what a firewall is since 1990. So you're trying to buy, or 1999, you're trying to buy a product that no longer exists, and then you have to cost allocate all the modern functionality out of that. So you can imagine trying to go out and buy a 1999 firewall, it just doesn't exist, but that's the way that it's defined in the, the, the rules. And so school districts have to cost allocate about two thirds to three quarters of the cost, the modern cost of a firewall. Um, you know, and things like multi factor authentication are not covered under the current uh, E rate program. Now, our Federal Communications Commission, the chairwoman has said we need to do a pilot. And so they're talking about doing a pilot. For around cybersecurity over the coming months uh, she's proposed a three-year program for 200 million well that will be a drop in the bucket <laughs> so we are encouraging them to do a one-year program with 200 million prove it and then fix the program
1: so can we jump across the parents and around this because you know parents parents expect schools to be looking after their children while they're with their and under their care Um And unfortunately, all the efforts around student data, privacy, do very little to allay concerns of parents. So um, there was a survey recently that showed 79% of parents cited privacy as a concern when their students use technology from school. And compliance with privacy laws is just not sufficient because these laws don't really address the issue at the heart of privacy concerns. And that's trust. And so school leaders, online service providers, education associations and other stakeholders must begin to build that trust around collection as a use of data, but how do they do that? And do you recommend certain policies and approaches to enable that?
2: Yeah, Well, uh, first of all, parents have a big role to play around privacy uh, uh, and security. Uh, Obviously, uh, students don't just access things through the school-provided network and device. So many students are are using uh, their own, uh, whether it's a computer or whether it's a, a mobile device that's in their pocket, and they probably have their own data plan which probably is not filtered uh, through the school district so um, right away we have even if the school network was perfect and it's not always perfect uh, you you have a, a challenge that that families have access to a lot of things that may not be on a safe a, a safe, a secure area. So uh, it's critical, I think, that school districts and, and other community nonprofits help parents uh, think about what their role is and what they can do, especially when the student is on their own device. Um, school districts also need to uh, not only do better practices around uh, student data privacy, but they also have to do, to be trusted, you have to be able to convey that. And Uh, COSIN has created a trusted learning environment seal. Um, One of the confusing aspects of uh, uh, privacy is that... um, you know, you get into this very legalistic argument of whether things are allowed or not allowed under very old federal laws, uh, FERPA or or whatever. And and I think what we, we, those things are important, you do have to comply with the law, but they aren't necessarily the all the best practices that need to be done today. And so we have created the Uh, the SEAL, Trusted Learning Environment SEAL, and it's in five buckets. So there's policy, there's kind of a policy area, there's procurement, there's cybersecurity, there's training, um, you know, and then there are uh, practices under each one. And you have to achieve all 25 practices in order to get the SEAL. Um, We call it the Trusted Learning environment seal because trust is at the heart of of, of all of this. You know, there's lots of concerns, uh, but I think when school districts uh, take a lead and show that they are adhering to the highest uh, gold standard around privacy, that's where we see you can change the conversation. Excellent, because
1: I was reading about that um, that. Deer Park Independent School District recently mm-hmm. won that, um, and and they must be really doing something exceptional to win it. The question is, how yeah, many it, it schools isn't have just actually awarded this? Yeah, it isn't, okay.
2: ac- it isn't that you're just like checking off, are you doing this or not doing this? You actually have to provide evidence, uh, which we review, uh, on all 25 practices and if you only get 19 of them, you don't get the seal. Now we do uh, tell the school district, you know, here are the ones you didn't achieve, and here's how other school districts have met met those 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 practices.
1: So how how new is this in terms of the the seal? That you're providing? The
2: seal we've had for about, I think it's about eight years, uh, and it's very uh, ambitious. It's hard for school districts to achieve it. Um, we are uh, doing a couple of things to uh, improve that. One is we want school districts to think of this as a continuous improvement process. So, you know, if you had Fifteen of the twenty-five that you've achieved, if you can over the next six months, you know, knock off another three, and then knock off another five next year, you know, it's moving towards a better environment. Um, we also are exploring, kind of, uh, right now. You either get the seal or you don't get the seal. Um, we're thinking of some uh, quicker ways that we can move people. Uh, along the process when when they get uh, a certain level of 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 it which might help people fee- see p- success we know that it's hard to maintain a commitment to something as complicated as privacy uh, when it takes so much work and so many pieces you know you're not it's not just the technology department you have to work with the get the right policies adopted by the school board you have to get the the teaching and learning folks Doing teaching and learning around uh, privacy, keeping things private. You have to work with the finance office around procurement. So So a question for
1: you across the United States, how many schools have actually achieved it? today? So we
2: have about um, 30 school districts that have achieved it, but there are obviously thousands of school districts. So it's a very high bar, but we are starting to work with state departments of education. And I think getting, you know, states like uh, North Carolina now are making it a priority. They're uh, showing how school districts. So we're hoping that that will start leapfrogging to a much larger Uh, audience. And we know we have hundreds of school districts that have started the process. They just haven't quite achieved all 25 practices. But scalability is always a challenge.
1: Yes, indeed. Indeed. And paying people to become educated in this area as well, I'm sure. So can we change directions and have a bit of a conversation about you? Are you happy with that? Okay, uh, yeah. so um, <laughs> what, it's 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 always quite nice to kind of know how you ended up where you are, kind of thing. It's always because uh, we get such interesting guests, and no one ever seems to have a direct route to how they've ended up where they are. But what initially got you interested in ed tech, you know, and how is that shift focus, you know, come across? over your cheer, your career? How has it changed?
2: Fun, fun question. I, I grew up in a family of the educators and I was the black sheep. I was interested in politics and policy. And so I uh, went off to Washington many, many years ago and uh, worked on Capitol Hill uh, on telecommunications policy. Sounds really interesting, right? But actually, uh, we were uh, with Al Gore inventing the internet, and uh, there were all kinds of industry fights uh, over policy, you know, regulating or deregulating the cable industry or telephones breaking up the system, Nobel. And, and I wasn't interested in any of that. I was interested in how do we use telecommunications to improve health education and libraries. And so I started building coalitions around that and COSIN became one of my early uh, part-time clients uh, almost uh, 30 almost thirty years ago. COSIN had existed for a few years, two years before that. But um, so I have, uh, I, I'm really a, a dinosaur in that I've worked for the same organization for uh, almost thirty years, and yet, uh, I—the reason I stay is it—it's uh, all about innovation, and uh, I, they keep letting me do new things, learning new things, and I think artificial intelligence is the the next new thing that we're that we're into.
0: Yes.
1: Oh, absolutely.
2: It's
0: very exciting. So, can I ask kind of a tangential question, um, Keith? Since you have your telecom background. Uh, Getting a little back to this digital inequity, I mean, it seems to me, right, internet access, it's almost like a a right, right? I mean, you you have to have it to exist in today's society Uh, if you want to make a doctor's appointment, for example, you know. And so why isn't it available for free or are we ever going to get to that place where it's just you know because it's a commodity right it's it's ubiqu- should be ubiquitous everywhere we go like when I lived in New York you had the internet on the subway station lines um, so you could you know do whatever you're doing uh, on the subways and it it'd be great to see that extended or are we going to get to that place where that inequity divides really really doesn't become a factor
2: uh, I think it's a you raise a great question and. Um, unfortunately, so many policymakers and uh, and some of the public have said, well, it's just not that important. But it really is. And as you pointed out, it has changed kind of the way we do work. It changed the way we live. And, um, you know, I, th- I think some wise policy was done in the United States around connecting schools and libraries uh, back, uh, you know, 25 years ago with the E-Rate program. And so we have pretty good connectivity at school in most places. There are exceptions, highly, highly rural remote areas, you know, right. in places like Alaska or whatever. But most school schools are connected p- pretty fast. But the problem right. is students do a lot of work outside of school. And, and uh, there are lots of families that either don't have or can't afford, or are underconnected uh, to be able to use these tools in in powerful ways, and so um, helping uh, pu- uh, the public understand what's at risk when um, when there are you know predominantly poor and and minority families. Uh, that are left behind, uh, you know, you're at a greater advantage if you can go home and do your homework and, and collaborate uh, with your, your uh, fellow students to, mm-hmm. to than if you're not able to do that, or if you're on a data connect data capped uh, plan that uh, uh, you're not connected for part of the month.
0: Well, I look forward to that hopefully changing one day and, and- and people saying it is important. You know, it, it just seems like a basic right to me. I, I, I think you're right. Is, I think right?
2: you're right. It is a right. And I think, um, you know, the one of the things that gives me a bit of hope is uh, the pandemic. Uh, you know, Congress and the President uh, Biden have made a big priority of of broadband. And so uh, now that's uh, funding is still happening uh, and rolling out right now. And we're connecting a lot of rural areas and, and there are places in big cities, the, you know, the mobile homes and the, the low income apartments that are, are not connected. And so um, what, you know, that connectivity, getting good, fast connections and um, it will, can and will make a big difference and certainly for will for schools.
0: Did, can we come back to the AI mentioned too?
1: <laughs> you can't stay away from AI, <laughs> Rachel. <laughs> you've got AI obsession. AI <laughs>
2: and cybersecurity are the gifts that keep on giving for every Aren't every moment. Every day.
0: <laughs> well, and, and you know, you so you've been here at, at Cozen for thirty years, and you've. you've seen all of this evolution i'm i'm curious to kind of see from your perspective in the next 5 years i mean how do you see ai playing a role here well
2: <laughs> who knows even in the, who knows even next, next week months, or, right? or next month or uh, uh, and certainly uh, you know i don't know that we were predicting last november as we headed into thanksgiving that that uh, generative AI or what was called ChatGPT would would have the kind of impact across the world as it yeah. has, you know. And I, I think we are though at a crossroads, uh, a new industrial revolution. Uh, you know, the World Economic Forum would say uh, there we're heading into the fourth. Uh, revolu- economic revolution with AI, driven by AI, and so as important as electricity was, or steam was, uh, or the internet has been for the last thirty years, all of those things still exist. We still have electricity, we still have the internet uh, and and computing, but AI is giving us the ability to do a whole variety of things that we never thought were possible before. Um, I hope that educators will both see the opportunity and they will do it thoughtfully so they put in guardrails so that bad things don't just don't happen because we didn't consider them. Um, but you know across all industry sectors, they say there's about a 30 percent productivity uh, benefit when you apply, AI to do some of the routine things that we've been doing. Well, right away, I think that educators can certainly think about, you know, whether it's lesson planning or or planning the the cafeteria lunch or bus schedules or the school schedule. Those are really easy, low-hanging fruit. The big challenge will be, you know, what can and should we use in the classroom? What is cheating? You know, and this brings, <laughs> this brings me back to the it's old like uh, calculator, calculator debate, or the, the debate about the internet. You know, it, it means we're going to have to do different kinds of assessments, things that are factual. You know, yes, no, or you know, you know, what is the capital of Sweden is is uh, easy to find out. We can and isn't probably what we should be testing students on. Asking, you know, why is Stockholm the capital of uh, Sweden uh, and putting forth various uh, uh, questions and things. So, um, uh, uh, theories. And, uh, you know, I think we're going to have to uh, just providing, you know, written essays to get into college, uh, we're going to have to make sure that they're cited, that they're factual, that they, um, you know, they reflect the student, not some. Five minute, 30 second generated uh, essay (laughs) that
1: ChatGPT created.
0: That sounds like a tall order, Keith.
1: (laughs) I I think it is, but I I have to admit, I've seen some of the ChatGPT work, and I still think it all depends on what you train it on in the first place as to how compelling it is.
2: Absolutely. Prompt is the new literacy and who a year ago would have used the word prompt <laughs> but i think that that's you know schools are are going to have to everyone's going to have to get better about what questions we're asking and and i guess that's called a prompt in, in ai but we ought to ask good questions which is what you two are all about right
0: that's right <laughs> thank you Awesome. Well, do you have any parting thoughts for our listeners, Keith? Because this is it's such an important topic, and I'd love to leave them with some some kind of words to think on.
2: Um, one, th- 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 this isn't about AI. This is going back to your equity uh, questions mm-hmm. early on. I, I didn't mention that we have uh, re- we've launched a new digital equity dashboard. Yes. And uh, the the interesting thing about that is it's taking publicly available data. Um, and we've, so, you know, a school district could have gone out if they had a big research department, which most don't, right. uh, and they could have looked at a whole bunch of varieties like broadband speed or poverty levels or, uh, all, all kinds of health indicators or But what we've done is we've taken 35 different indicators and put it all in one dashboard and you can correlate those. And it aligns to the school district boundaries. So um, that has never been done before. So we're really interested in seeing how school districts use this free digital equity dashboard. You can find it on our website, cosen.org slash digital equity. Um, How you how they use it. And some school districts are going to add on on top of that, their student information system, which only they would see that data, and they could get it down to the specific family or student. Um, So that's what the power is. I mean, we can have lots of surveys, we can have lots of generic information, but let's take what's publicly available out there and Mm -hmm. see and ask those questions around equity.
0: I love that. I, I love we keep hearing kind of this common theme, Audra, of these free resources available to these critical oh, communities and and the power of being able to to take that kind of, you know, data analytics, right, to make a critical decision making um, is, is just so important. So I, I imagine that was a lot to put together, Keith. But you know, thank you for that. Um, however we can help those, you know, that don't have the resources to get there, it's just so important. You know, all boats rise sure thank you well i guess that's all we have today yeah
1: <laughs> just just no, getting ahead, the Audrey. message yeah. out there it's 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 one thing because the thing is there's so many free things available that can help it's just that awareness so that's that's why i really appreciate you it coming really on is. and getting your message message out there keith well, thank and
0: you i do want to say we will put the link to the digital equity dashboard into our notes our description for this episode so folks can easily find it Great. That's awesome. So I hate for these conversations to end, but you know, it's called to the point, uh, unfortunately. So. <laughs> so Keith, thank you so, so much for joining us today. This has been um, a wonderful conversation and and I learned so much and and that's what I, I love about, you know, when we do these, um, you share so many insights on these, these critical needs and, you know, kind of these critical themes that people aren't talking about as much. And I, I hope we've shined a light to a lot of our listeners and, And hopefully, you know, kind of giving them some new resources they can pursue uh, to help address a lot of these challenges that that our school communities are facing.
2: Thank you. And uh, hopefully you're having some fun with your dog.
0: (laughs) That's why I was on mute for a lot of the podcasts. Oh, goodness. Well, to all of our listeners out there, thank you again for joining us this week. And again, don't forget to subscribe. Just smash that subscription button and you get a fresh episode every Tuesday. So until next time, everyone, stay secure. Thanks for joining us for the To The Point Cybersecurity Podcast brought to you by Forcepoint. For more information and show notes from today's episode, please visit forcepoint.com slash govpodcast. And don't forget to subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or Stitcher.